When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Tax Alpha Solutions Podcast, hosted by Matt Chancy. Matt is a tax consultant, author, and certified financial planner with almost two decades helping his clients grow their net worth. On the show, Matt brings together an array of specialists to share with you their experience and success along with strategies of the 1%. Matt Chancy is with Coastal One, member FINRA SIPC. And now, here's your host, Matt Chancy. So good afternoon, everybody. This is Matt Chancy with another episode of the Tax Alpha Podcast. Um, very excited today. We have a, an estate planning and business planning attorney that owns her own firm, and she has partnered with her husband in it as well because he does some amazing coaching. And so, and we're excited to hear her story. So today it is Natalia Willette. Grice, and she's based out of Tampa, Florida, state planning, business planning attorney. Natalia, glad to have you. Thanks for being here. Thank you for bringing me on, Matt. I appreciate it very much. Absolutely. You're more than welcome. So, you know, on our pre-call, you were telling me some pretty interesting stuff about how you got into the business that you're in. So let's go back to kind of your origin a little bit because your, you know, how you know what you know, your path is a little different. You started off in the title business. Is this correct? That's correct. So, um, I graduated from law school back in 2009. It's funny how time flies. But at that time, as you know, it's like the financial (laughs) collapse. But it was actually an optimal time to get into the title industry business. It was a wonderful opportunity to go after people that were seeing these, you know, great deals (laughs) in the marketplace and taking these properties, fixing them up, making them special and valuable again, and then, you know, reselling them to end buyers. And so I I partnered up with a title company that they eventually made me president, but they were targeting all of these real estate investors. They were people that, you know, were finding properties at tax deed sales and foreclosure sales, REOs, right amidst the, this financial collapse, uh, but at the same time opportunity. And, um, and they became our clients. And so I, I became really seasoned with the real estate investor community here in Florida, particularly in the greater Tampa Bay area. And that's how I got uh, started in, you know, the area of law that I practice. So it was a lot of real estate litigation back then for title clearing purposes, making sure that everything was easy peasy, smooth and clean for these uh, title transactions. There was a lot of estate uh, probate cases involved in that too, because, you know, you find a great deal when somebody passes away and the family can no longer manage or handle the assets. And at the same time, right, these clients were all business owners, all small business owners, but a lot of them didn't have the understanding of how to run these businesses efficiently or effectively or how to like limit liability. And so throughout the 10-year path of working uh with this Tampa Bay title company, I was able to develop the skills that I have now that we use at LCO Law. All right. All right. Nice. So 
working there, closing title, coming out of the worst real estate environment that we had seen in a, you know, the, I think it's, we, it's still referred to as the, you know, the, the great correction or the great crash or whatever. The great recession. Yeah. The great recession was so bad. I don't know. Anyway, unfortunately there were so many people coming out of school at that particular time that just thought, you know, the, the world was going to end and they all view real estate and all that stuff as when's the next crash coming. And so, and thinking that real estate, all real estate's eventually going to be worth 20 cents on the dollar again, or whatever, like it was in, in 09. And I'm like, that was an anomaly. That'll probably happen <laughs> once in a lifetime. So don't keep waiting on that moment, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but what you learned in there created the opportunity for you to spin off and start this law firm because you saw business owners that were many of them primarily in the real estate business and you saw an opportunity to serve them better. So what was the next step? What what problem did you see that you knew you could solve better? And what was the motivating factor to jump out there and go do it? So actually, as soon as I entered the title company, um, it was owned by an attorney. So him and I started a partnership of law firm that was offering these like title clearing services. And at the same time, a little bit of business services, a little bit of probate services here and there. And we created this partnership. And this partnership is what got formally incorporated, organized as LCO Law back in 2014. Um, And what I saw was that, again, they were these people that we were seeing over and over again, because they were bringing hundreds of deals to the title company to close, they were having very similar issues. A lot of employee turnover, a lot of uh, systemic issues in terms of like the processes, miscommunications along the way, you know, getting to the closing table, poorly drafted contracts, all these issues that you see. And, and you, I kind of had a light bulb moment going, <laughs> there's a better way for them to be running these businesses. Uh, they could be making so much more money, have a much better team in place, and also start protect, like truly protecting those assets that they were acquiring along the way. Uh, the wealth, the intellectual capital involved in all of their the processes, right? Their know-how. And I started buying out my partners at the law firm. We had about uh, four partners in 2017. I bought out my uh, former boss, uh, another partner back then. And then uh, my last partner, I bought him out in 2020 to make it all mine. And the reason why I wanted to make it all mine is because I wanted to shift gears as to how we were doing it. I didn't want it to be focused on just serving the title company clientele. I wanted it to, I wanted to expand it to other investors and other business owners, small business owners that, again, they had maybe a good understanding of, of like their own little niche, what they do, the product or the service that they created, but they didn't have a really good understanding of how to properly monetize for it, properly account for, you know, what was going on. They didn't have the right legal structure in place. Um, and they they all had families, but they didn't have any succession plan or any idea of what they were going to do to to pass along this you know, wealth that they had created onto their loved ones. And uh, so by buying out all my other partners, (laughs) I was able to just change everything up and make it all mine. Um, And that took place right at the end of 2019. So that's when I, uh, I said, all right, I'm I'm done with this uh, title company business. I want to focus 100% of the time on the law firm and yeah, launch then, which you know, as all of us know, three months later, the pandemic happened. But I think that was a good opportunity to shift things too, because the pandemic um, resulted in a lot of laws and regulations regarding the real estate industry, right? 
uh, foreclosures couldn't take place, which meant, uh, you know, like evictions couldn't take place either. And we were helping a lot of real estate investors with that before then. And when evictions couldn't happen, sheriffs couldn't go and post notices where they were supposed to post notices for these foreclosure sales, for tax deed auctions, for all of that. So it's like, we need to shift gears. Can't be relying mostly on real estate litigation. Let's focus more on helping on the business end. And, um, I was like, you know, I have this MBA degree. I want to apply it. I have always loved business. My my grandfather was a business owner My on both sides of the family, actually. Uh, my parents were business owners. They were both uh, physicians, but they always owned their own practices. And so I was like, this, this is in my blood. This is what I want to do. I want to help people with business. And that's how it came along. Well, it sounds like to me, you coming out of law school and then getting in business and you pivoting your business have both happened in some of the worst financial times that we've experienced in this. So your businesses were all born in chaos to some extent. So um, so it sounds like, you know, you learned very quickly how to create an opportunity because that's what they always say, right? In, in bad market environments are when real wealth is built because you have to lean into the bad opportunity because there's real opportunity to grow and change and pivot at those times, but not everybody's willing to do that, right? Some people are so set in their ways that they won't look for what's the new opportunity that we can pivot into and how how do we build a business around that struggle? Yeah, yeah. And it's, as you were saying, you know, people, uh, most people are kind of scared to move into something different. But I think, you know, when you learn to see these things as opportunities, there's so much more of a competitive advantage there, right? Because it's either you're set in your ways and you're going to stagnate and eventually your business will close down or you go, hey, this catastrophe that has happened in the market, right? Or globally is demonstrating that there's a need here that needs to be addressed. How can we serve that need? And that's what I've done along the way. Understood. Well, good for you. Good for you taking the leap and making the pivot. Understood. So let's talk a little bit about, I believe that... Many business owners don't understand the the mistakes potentially that they're making until sometimes it's too late, right? And you rattled off a couple of them, you know, like protecting their assets, their legal structures, their succession plans, like high level, two, three, four things that all business owners are screwing up and unaware that they're screwing up until it's too late that they need to be doing better. What are those things? Well, I would say, number one, listening to the wrong people about how to set up their business, right? They'll happily listen to their coworker, their pastor, their friend, their neighbor, uh, but they don't go to professionals to seek the legal advice, right? And and so they end up making costly mistakes, right? Uh, Not being aware of how to truly limit liability, uh, thinking that, you know, I'm just going to go online and I'm going to, you know, create an LLC, but not really actually following through on what that means and how to maintain the limitations of liability and how to run it so that it does have limited liability protections, which is the advice that you get from a professional. Um, similarly, they make huge mistakes when it comes to taxes. Too many people, right? They they try to run their own books uh, and at the same time that they're trying to operate a business, which is a mistake. <laughs> First thing you should offload, in my opinion, is, you know, taxes and bookkeeping. Absolutely. Have it done by a professional. And so you have people that, you know, they have three, four, five years behind on their tax filings, on their paperwork. And it's really costly because if you don't have that in place, right, if you don't have an organized, think about all the people that lost out on PPP funding 
because they didn't have those documents in place. They may have been in business eight, nine years, so sufficient time to qualify, but they didn't have their tax returns prepared and ready to go so they could provide that to the SBA, right? And take advantage of that. Same thing with the EIDL loans. You don't have your paperwork in place, you're missing out on incredibly cheap loans to, to fund growth for your business. And so I think that's that's a giant mistake, right? Not having tax advisors and bookkeepers in place to keep everything in line and do it for you. Get it done out of the way. And it's it's incredibly cheap service. Um, those are two huge mistakes that I think about. And then the third one is if they do bring in a team, they don't implement like systems for, for training and having how are things done in a recorded way, whether it's in writing, whether it's in videos. And so when a person leaves, when that employee leaves, right, all of the information, all the knowledge is gone. And now they have to start from scratch making it a lot longer to train anybody new, making it a lot more difficult to replicate, you know, processes, making it really tough to to see if like the quality is going on there for the service or the product that they're providing. Um, so those I would say are really three, three big, three very big things that I see frequently happen with small business owners. Okay. So, so if we're a small business owner, the first thing we've got to do is we've got to select our entity and set it up to, for, you know, the asset protection or whatever we're trying to accomplish there. So that's, so, so, so that's right at the beginning when you're setting up your business entity formation. I mean, I think too many people think, oh, I'm going to set up an LLC or I'll go online on Sunbiz or whatever, but they don't really think about like the type of structure that they're setting up and how it's taxed. S-Corp, C-Corp, partnership, you know, all that other stuff. So like, so first and foremost, it's, it's when, when you're setting up your business, that's when they should be reaching out saying, I'm thinking about setting up this business. What structure should I use and how should I use it? That's the first step we're talking about, right? Yes, definitely. Definitely. Because, you know, in that conversation with, with a professional, that's when you're going to learn. Okay. For example, if I have an LLC, right? I need to have an account for my LLC. I need to make sure that I'm doing only the business transactions through business accounts, right? In the name of the business, that I'm not commingling things. That's a huge common issue that arises. Um, that if I have a partner, then I'm understanding what it means to have a partner in business, right? What kind of liability issues arise from having a partner in business and and the difference between, for example, you know, having a business that's run by the owners versus having a business that's owned, run by managers. Legally, there's different impacts, right? A manager-managed business is going to be binding only upon the actions of managers, not the owners. And so those are those are the kind of things that they're missing when it comes to formation. Uh, and just the same, right? The tax, as you mentioned, tax aspects, they have to go hand in hand. You need to know what is the purpose of your business? What's your long-term goal? That's gonna impact tax planning and selection, right? If this is like, if this is just a holding company, then it's gonna require a different tax structure than for example, a company where you're planning to earn most most of your your livable income as a result of that, right? And how do you minimize tax consequences? Do you want it to be as corporation, right? Like what advantages come from there? Is your income maybe a little bit too high or, you know, like, what do you want to do there? And so these are, are the, the kinds of conversations that must take place before you go and file something and set it up and then suffer the consequences, right? And once you've made a tax election, can be a lot more complicated to switch it back to something more optimal than if you had that conversation from a tax professional to begin with. So yeah, 
big, big misstep there. Uh, a lot of small business owners make. So, okay. So I would argue that one of the biggest objections to somebody not doing that would be, well, I didn't really know if the business was going to take off. I didn't know if it was going to work. And I wanted to see if it actually really turned into a little bit of a business or generated some revenue before I did all that. And now, oops, here you go, years down the road, and it looks like it is going to work. And I didn't put all those elements in place. So how do you how do you talk to that person that says that, that that might be their objection for leaning into this opportunity earlier? That's kind of where a little bit of the coaching comes in, right? I mean, you don't start something unless you're taking it seriously. That's really it. You know, it's kind of like the people that on January 1st decide that they want to sign up for a gym membership. (laughs) You're either going to actually take the time to go in, show up every week and lose the weight and get into the shape that you want to get into. Or you're going to sign up for a membership and not do anything with it and then go, oh, you know, why did nothing change, right? It's the same thing. You got to take your business seriously. You want to meet those business goals. You got to look at it from the very beginning as if this is the, let's say you want a multi-million dollar company. You got to treat it like a multi-million dollar company from the moment that you set it up. And it has to be that day in and day out. You can't look at it any other way or it's not going to (laughs) work. So yeah, that's, that's my opinion about it. You know, mindset really is like, you got to look at it from the mindset of a business owner, not the mindset of an employee, not like, well, it might work. And I'll just like, if anything happens, I'll just go back into, you know, <laughs> applying for a job here or there. No, you've got to look at it from the entrepreneurial perspective of like this and this and this until it works and <laughs> just keep at it. And, and it's scary, right? Because people are afraid to make mistakes along the way, right? We're raised and we're taught it's bad to make a mistake. Or if you get a C in a class where it's punished rather than, Hey, you know, what did you learn from last time? Right. How did, how did your knowledge change? What are you going to adjust based on what you just learned? That kind of lessons from our youth, right? We bring that on, carry that into our adult lives. And uh, unfortunately that makes us terrified to make mistakes in business, but you've got to make mistakes in business to grow. You just have to. No, that's how you learn, right? And tell you mm-hmm. learn. But yep. you know, look, I, I don't know about you, but I've seen plenty of um or talk to plenty of people that were going into some business and they explained to me what they thought they were going to do and the opportunity they saw in the marketplace. And I'm just like, what makes you think that's a business idea that's going to work? Like there's no competitive advantage in the marketplace. There's That's a low margin or no margin business. Like it's uber competitive. Like, did you clearly think this out? Like, you know, like what makes you think that business will win? Because I don't want to be in business just to compete. I only want to be in business if I understand from day one that I have a, um, a competitive advantage in the marketplace, either existing relationships that give me a leg up, you know, out of the gate or a proprietary strategy or product or solution or a legislative change that creates a new opportunity for a new product that never existed before, right? Like I want a competitive advantage. I don't just want to compete in a regular marketplace, but that's me, right? So, so I don't know about you, but when I see a business owner, sometimes I'm like, or somebody that wants to be a business owner, I'm like, maybe you should 
rethink that just a little bit and retool that idea because I don't see a differentiator in the way you're positioning that business that I think it truly has a chance for success. Not that I know everything because I don't. But like you, I talk to a lot of business owners all the time and I've heard a lot of really interesting stories about why people are good at different businesses and what their niches are. And like, you know, what do they always say? The riches are in the niches. Yes. Mm Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. So that's why when, you know, when we have business owners meet with us, it's a two hour conversation. That first meeting is two hours because I really want to dig deep into, okay, what is motivating you to have this business? How is it different, right? That like the unique value proposition about it so that you are a big fish in a little pond that you're creating rather than a small fish in a giant pond uh, that's saturated with similar businesses, right? It's There's got to be something different. And that's part of the conversation, which is why we engage in serious business planning with our clients, because people often just focus on like the service or the product, but they need to see how it functions as a whole. It's part of their business so that they actually end up having something profitable, right? Because what's the one obligation of a business owner? To make a profit. <laughs> That's it. Right. Not to run the business. It's not to manage operations. It's it's to be profitable. That is your one legal duty to yourself and the other shareholders to run it for profit. And so that's part of, you know, the what we cover, right? You need to know how is this going to be profitable? But you need to examine every area of the business, the marketing, the sales, the production, the people that need to be involved to get you to the profitability, right? And yes, there are stages of growth along a business where you're going to have some losses, but it's got to be planned losses so that those turn into revenue producing activities, profit producing activities fairly quickly. Sure. Sure. Understood. Understood. Planned losses. Who plans to lose? What are you talking about? That sounds crazy. Explain that a little bit. Why would somebody plan to have a loss? So for example, planned loss, very typical in, in growth is when you you know that you're rubbing up marketing so that you are now serving instead of 50 people, you're going to be uh, serving a clientele of 500 people. Well, you need to hire the team for it, right? So you're going to have maybe a month month and a half or so where the expenses, right, from having this team in place, the onboarding, the training and all of that to make sure that you can service 500 of whatever it is, um, is in place. So, But you need a plan for it, right? You need to know like this person is going to cost me this much to bring in this, how many clients they can serve uh, of whatever business offering that we have. This is how long it's going to take to train them. This is how long it's going to take now that they're trained for them to deliver that. And you've got to build that in so that you've got that plan loss thing, but also you know how much ROI that bringing in that one person to your business is going to create and therefore be profitable going forward. So that's what I mean by plan losses. Well, that's the chicken and the egg conversation, right? (laughs) Do I spend more money on marketing to drive opportunity or I spend more money on support staff and infrastructure to be able to actually support and plan for the new clients as they come in the door? Because like, if you're not sure you can get new clients, right? Because you're not sure the marketing will work or to what magnitude, right? Then then you've got the phone ringing and you're like, oh, hey, the marketing worked, um, but I don't know how to keep up with all these people. But what if you hire all these people? and you train them up and now they know what to do. And then you throw the marketing out there and it doesn't generate enough opportunity to keep the people business that you hired. Then you, you know, it's that, that's what I'm saying, that chicken and the egg deal, right? I think like we tend to take things too personally as business owners. Here's the reality, right? 
If the marketing works and you've got a trained team in place, wonderful. If the marketing didn't work and you have a trained team in place, you can do what you know you have to do, which is, hey, I'm going to have to do some layoffs. Or if you have the capital, all right, we're going to shift up marketing in this way and see if that works. And you might be able to keep some of the team or maybe all of the team, right? Depending on, on what kind of um, capital you're working with. But the idea is you don't let that emotional, oh my God, I like I'm going to be embarrassed that I have to lay some people off. So what if you have to lay some people off? Some things are going to work. Some things are not going to work. But you are always better off having people there in advance to serve a projected, you know, growth spurt than not, right? Because then if you don't have enough people and you're out there and you're starting to recruit and you already have 500 potential clients here, you know, or service or product or whatever, they're waiting, the quality is going to dip significantly. And that's going to be far more impactful for your business than, than having to do a couple of layoffs. So. Okay. Okay. I got you. Understood. I, and, I, and I see the perspective there. You know, um, I always make business ownership analogous to like um, a baseball game or a softball game, right? Like mm-hmm. in your early days of business, you know, for a baseball game or whatever to happen, you have to, you, there's two primary players that have to do something, a pitcher and a catcher. If somebody yep. doesn't throw the ball, right. And across home plate and somebody doesn't catch it, you don't repeat that process. The rest of the players and the batters are completely irrelevant. You have to have those two elements to start a baseball game. Right. Yep. Mm-hmm. But what is pitching? Pitching is your marketing, right? It's what drives right. your deal flow, drives your opportunity. And your catcher is the planner, the person that once that gets drawn to them, who's the one that does the technical work to make sure that the client, gets the outcome that they need, right? So I always tell people when you first start off, you got to determine what role you're better at. You know, if you're a great pitcher and you can create the opportunity, you need to partner with somebody that's a great planner. So you drive the opportunity to them and they plan it. Or if you have the technical skill and you can be the planner, you need to get a pitcher that can drive opportunity to you so that together it plays out. And then if it really turns into a business, then you have a pitcher and a catcher and you're neither and you're the pitching coach or you're the general manager of the team sitting in the dugout making sure the pitcher and the catcher are doing what they're supposed to do, right? And then hopefully we level up and we hope one day we're the GM or the owner of the team and we're sitting in the skybox <laughs> and it's all happening without us, right? But um, Yeah, that is the ideal, right? To be a hands-off business owner and not be in the nitty-gritty everyday kind of thing. Although I would say that you you absolutely need, you not only need a really good marketer and a good operations person, you need a good salesperson. <laughs> because without sales, you have no revenue. So that's that's essential, right? A great marketer can be terrible at sales and vice versa. Yeah. So you need those those three parts, those three roles are essential and they shouldn't be played by the same person. There's very rarely the occurrence where that one person holds all of those skills. Um, it's why you see even in the giant companies, right? There's always like, there's always like the vision person and then like the, the tactical know-how, here's how we implement your vision thing. Like I said, there's there's always the need for one more, right? Like the good salesperson, the one that's actually going to convince those people that are attracted by the marketing to to engage and get your, your services or your products. You know, it's funny you bring that up because um, you said strategic vision and stuff about a business. And I don't think a lot of people realize this, but they hear the terms like CEO and like president. Well, mm-hmm. if you definitionally, like a CEO is the strategic visionary of a business, where it's going to go, where it's going to develop, what new product lines, what markets they're going to get into. And it's not really how we do what we do. It's where we're going to go and where are the opportunities and how can we win. The president of a business historically is the person 
person that looks internally and functions on operations and goes, okay, since the, we strategically believe there's an opportunity in this marketplace, how do we execute on that? Who do we hire and how do we do it? So I don't think a lot of people actually know that, but I, I think it's, you know, CEO is external. Where's the opportunity? Where are we going? And a president is internally, okay, we're going to go there. How do we do it? Who do we hire? Butts in the right seats. And how do we win in that opportunity? And I think it's, um, those are two different skill sets for mm-hmm. people. Uh, yeah. It's not necessarily this game, same skill set for people. And, and uh, I think too many people, um, like you said, are um, cast into the wrong role. And therefore, it doesn't, they don't get to show up as their best self because they're doing something that they're not necessarily wired to do uh, best. Right. And then the business ends up suffering for it because they're putting themselves, as you said, in the wrong role. And for how long are they doing that? Right. And it's that fear of hiring (laughs) that really stagnates the ability of the business to grow. Because if you find somebody that's got those skills that you are just not the best at, right, your business will exponentially grow. It's yep. just, it's how it works, right? Yep. Yep. So one of the other things, so setting up your entities at the beginning, knowing how they're taxed. And then I heard you talk a little earlier into, you know, you've got partners and you've got family talking about succession planning as an opportunity, as something that's really missed. What is succession planning and why are business owners missing it? So I would say, let's start it with why, right? Why are business owners missing it? I think it's in part because we we think we're invincible and we have this concept of of no, no, nothing will ever happen to me. I'm never going to die kind of a thing, right? We're all in denial out there about the realities of life. But the thing is, you know, we can we can die at any moment in time. Nobody knows when we're going to die. And the same thing can happen with incapacitation. There's just too many car accidents out there, strokes, heart disease, that it may not kill you but it can certainly incapacitate you. And then what happens with your business, right? So succession is about, you know, strategically knowing and understanding what's going to happen with your business at the moment that you become disabled or maybe that you retire or that you pass away, right? I call them the five Ds. Uh, So it's like death, disability. This is a super common one. Disagreements, right? Disagreements with co-owners and things like that. Divorce, divorce is the big way of losing your business. And uh, the fifth one is done working. (laughs) So it's either, you know, like retirement from the business, or it could be a co-owner that is engaged in operations, but they've done some behaviors that were unethical, not good for the business, et cetera. And it's, it's a forced, you know, retirement kind of a thing. So that's, that's another way of done working, but those five D's are all the reasons for succession, for planning, for you know, what happens in the event of this? What's going to happen with the business? How do I buy out that partner that's done working because he, he didn't do things right? Or the one that wants to retire or in the event of disability. So it's about effectively knowing how to transfer ownership and management of the business so that it still is a productive vehicle for the owners. And it, you know, people, people often think, oh, I'll just pass this on to my kids. But like, what if your kids want nothing to do with the business? Then you've got to think about, okay, potentially key employees, other partners, or selling it externally. And with closely held entities, of course, you've got some issues about the marketability of the business when it's been closely held and particularly with small businesses that have no systems in place, no written systems in place, right? Where's the value in that? Where's the predictability and profit and and all of that? So that's succession planning. 
Sure, sure. When you started rattling off the D's there for a minute, I you, I got a little flashback to dodgeball. If you can <laughs> dodge a wrench, you can dodge a ball. Duck, dodge, duck, dive, duck, duck. <laughs> I was like, the D, she's just rattling them all off there. Like, I don't know why that jumped into my head. But it- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And of course, with the estate planning, it's, you know, you've got, you don't just have your business as an asset. That's one of your, the assets, right? But you've got like, you've got your retirement, you've got savings, you've got other types of investments, you've got your real estate and, and all of that needs to be taken into account because the last thing you want to do is throw your family into probate litigation and have them deal with years of fighting to, to get a hold of your assets. It's the reason uh, like probate um, and lack of estate planning is the reason why about $50 billion worth of assets are lost annually to just as cheatment back to the States. It's, you know, when nobody can... Nobody's got the funds to open up the probate and it just gets lost and it gets stagnated. And then it gets sent to, you know, the each state's respective department where they hold assets for a certain amount of time. And then it becomes property of the state. Who wants that for their family? Uh, but it happens too often. Sure, sure. Well, I think... I think a lot of it is people are intimidated by the process. And look, you know, you only get to go through it kind of one time. Like I think we mentioned the gym earlier on here. Well, you know, if you stink at the gym the first day that you go, you can wake up, dress up, show up and go the next day. And eventually you get better and you kind of understand the process of going to the gym and it it starts to work for you. But going through a probate process or a business succession or something, you don't get to try and practice every single day to get it right. You kind of get one good crack at it to see if you can hit it. And so, you know, if you mess it up, you know, there's sometimes you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube on that stuff. Right. Yeah. And, and I've seen, I've seen plenty of probates where, you know, like the family had opened up the, and and here in the state of Florida, like probates must be opened up by an attorney. It's not something people can do pro se, but because there was no order organization, nothing that said, you know, what mom's or dad's assets were, what you see is there's a probate that takes place. Great. It's closed. And then a year or so later, they have to reopen it because, oh, we found this other asset that belonged to mom or dad that nobody knew about. And so it's a lot longer than people think to get it all fully administered, which is why proper estate planning must always take into account like an inventory of the client's assets. Truly, what do they have? And regularly updating that. So it's it's in a place, it's in a location where somebody that's trusted and has fiduciary obligations, right, to the client is going to have that information in place if something happens as well. The family now knows this is what dad had, this is what mom had, sister or brother, whatever it might be. Um, saving a lot of time if you do eventually have to probate anything. Yeah. Yeah. But then it's scary. You got to share all your information and what you own and where you own it, everything with somebody else. And sometimes business partners don't want their other partners to know or don't want their spouses to know or don't want their kids to know or whatever. So they, you know, intentionally obfuscate what they have a little bit so that it's just, but then that, that hurts them later on in the process. Right. Cause like, then it's, not found or lost or whatever, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's, I mean, it's not something you have to share during your lifetime, but it's just letting your family members know who has the information, right? So that when you pass away and you can no longer be embarrassed, <laughs> um, it's there, it's there for the family. But yeah, I mean, that's why it's it's really important, like choosing somebody that you trust to handle this information for you and on behalf of your family as well. Sure. 
So not in the title business anymore, helping business owners with their estate planning. You, you kind of leaning into what you wanted to do now using that NBA, but how do people find you today? Like how do, you know, how do the customers that you serve today, is it referrals from other professionals that are working with your clients? Is it, um, you know, like how do people find you? So we generally we get uh, clients from referrals. A lot of clients also come from the workshops. We have workshops at least once a month that we hold, and there are workshops on different uh, topics. So sometimes they're on you know LLC formation issues. We have a workshop that we do fairly regularly for. Um, like emergency business planning. So this kind of like introduces the concept and idea to business owners of, hey, if you're if you're out, right, for a couple of weeks to maybe a couple of months, what needs to be in place for your business to continue to run without you? So those workshops and referrals are generally the big source. We're also sponsors at different events. And you know, there's the the typical like online marketing and things like that. But my favorite uh, way of doing it is workshops and referrals and just having those long-term um, relationships with both re- professional referral sources and our clients because we, we do get a lot of referrals from our clients. Sure. So who are the tips, the types of um, typical professional referral sources? I know some estate business planning attorneys um, get a lot of referrals from financial advisory types. They build relationships with financial advisory types and say, hey, you're going to stumble across these business owner clients and stuff and we can help them with their estate planning. Um, is that part of what it is or is it other, is it CPAs? Is it other attorneys that know you have a niche in the way that you serve people? Like who, who are your best referral sources? So I would say it's it's actually none of those that you have mentioned is realtors. (laughs) Realtors are great referral sources for us. They, I mean, they tend to know a lot of people, um, young people, right? Because in our practice, we don't take care of elder law issues. So elder law, you know, once a client hits about 65 or so, and they start entering that age where there's a lot more like incapacitation issues due to Alzheimer's and other kind of needs broken broken bones, all of that, they need special kind of elder care planning. So mostly because they're going to be needing to access government benefits if they don't have private long-term care insurance coverage. And so financial planners tend to, I don't know why, but they wait until their clients are of a certain heightened age to actually start those estate planning discussions. And so they're excellent for elder law. Uh, referral purposes. But we work with younger people and find that realtors are actually there. They are day in, day out dealing with young families, young communities, young professionals, right? And so they tend to be the best referral sources for us. Interesting. Well, I can tell you why it's not financial planners based on who you're going after from a client demographic, right? Because financial planners have to work with people that have money and some capacity to be able to be compensated from it. And most people early on don't haven't really accumulated any real wealth yet, right? They're putting it into their business or they're building their business with it. And you get this incongruency with a financial planner that says, oh, I've got this investment over here. You should take money out. And the client's like going, yeah, but if I but I want to put it into my business and I want to grow my business, that dollar can't be in both places at the same time. So that creates an incongruency, right? So a good opportunity to work for you might be, and this is you probably know this already, but maybe insurance people that focus on insurance because you know when a doctor or a high income earning person gets into the business community. 
Like the first, the most valuable thing they have day one is their ability to earn an income going forward. If I make $200,000 a year Mm -hmm. and I'm 30 years old and I can do that till I'm 65 or inflation adjusted, right? I'm going to earn two, four, six million dollars over the next 30 years. I don't own an asset at 30 years of age that's worth six million dollars. So somebody that sells them disability insurance or sells them life insurance potentially to protect that asset later might be a good fit. And all, not all financial people sell disability and or life insurance. So just, I don't know. Yeah. So I, um, I do have some relationship with some financial planners that actually focused on business owners, small business okay. owners. So they're actually a good source of referral for me. CPAs that work with small businesses, obviously a good source of referrals there. Plus, it tends to, you know, enhance both of the relationships because I really speak highly of having a good, solid CPA that's helping you have a a good tax strategy every year as your business continues to grow. It's, I mean, it's essential, right? You've got to have somebody like that on your team. Um, And then the the other aspect is, though, I think that you're you're underestimating the potential for wealth building for millennials. Most of my clients are in their late 30s to early 40s, and they're all have multi-million dollars worth of assets. But they've built this through non-traditional businesses. And so it's like, I would say that's why uh, real estate investors are are really kind of like our root bread and butter for who we help out because there's so much opportunity with real estate um, investing, going about it the right way. There's so many different products in real estate investing, right? There's not just flipping and rentals, but now there's people that like do arbitrage. There's people that do like the short-term rentals with the Airbnb industry. Um, There's uh, real estate investment trusts, right? So all of those things, syndications, they provide so many opportunities for, for very quick uh, wealth accumulation for younger generations. And, and those are the people that we like to help the most. I think it's like, it's also really creative uh, approaches that you have to take with their assets. And so I really enjoy that. And I don't disagree with you, but most financial advisory types don't help clients invest directly into real estate. They, yeah. they're, they want to put it in stocks and bonds or mutual yep. funds or annuities or other products. And that it creates this push-pull with a traditional mm-hmm. with that investor because that investor is going, well, I want to buy another you know Airbnb property or something. And the advisor is going, well, put something in a mutual fund. Yeah. And you're like, if you're not putting enough in a mutual fund, I can't help you be the financial advisory guy because most financial advisors don't have like an hourly fee-for-service model where you can hire a financial advisor to do a cash flow analysis and look at other risks that you ultimately have for that real estate investor. They do it off of winning assets from them and placing them in other products. And that's just not something that your real estate investing clients want to do. They they have learned enough and want to do some of that stuff on their own. They don't want this financial person saying, don't put it into that, put it into this other stuff. Well, maybe there's an opportunity there, right? For a market of financial advisors to develop a different way of, of fees, right? To serve that kind of client community. Because I do think real estate investors need to diversify their portfolio of assets. And they do start doing that. But sometimes it's a little bit too too late to have as great of an effect as it could have. I generally haven't seen that diversification take place until they're like about 10 years into their business. And it's like, why? Why are you waiting this long? So, Well, that's an easy answer, right? So concentration 
Concentration in a product and or strategy and being right will make you rich. Diversification of multiple strategies and assets will keep you rich. And at first, when you're not rich, you don't care to diversify. You want to concentrate all your efforts and your money on your very best ideas to get you to the point where you want to be. And then you diversify out your holdings so that you get to stay at this new place where you got to be, right? (laughs) Well, there you go. That explains it. No more complicated than that. But the key is being concentrated with the right idea, with the right strategy and knowing how to execute. There's a lot of people out there that concentrate all their effort and energy on the wrong strategy and ends up going absolutely nowhere for them. So, you know, concentration is a great strategy when you're right with your strategy and, and how you're deploying those resources. So, yeah, and I think it's kind of like, you know, sometimes people people go and tell themselves, well, you know, I've already put so much into this, right? The sunk cost concept. And it's like, yeah, but what are you seeing in terms of results, right? Yep. You got to change if you want something different. It's a terrible business model. You need to kill it right now, right? You know, it's like Mr. Wonderful on Shark Tank. He's like, you're doing what? This is a terrible idea. I, You're <laughs> going to kill the money and you should burn it now, you know? And like some people need to hear that. They need to hear the tough love that this is a terrible idea and they should stop doing it and do something that's ultimately, you know, stands a better chance of working for them long-term. So I get yep. it. Yep. I get it. <laughs> Well, Natalia, this has been fun. We typically do this for about an hour, kind of running up against our time, you know, uh, see how easy that was. It just flowed with you naturally being you and talking about what you're passionate about. See? Yeah. All right, Matt. Now, if I may ask, how did you get into this business? Uh, It's a good question. So, you know, a long time ago, I was, I guess some some people would call me a, a financial advisory type. And I really don't identify as that today. I'm really just a business owner and I monetize some of what I know through financial advisory licenses, but I don't really identify as a financial person per se. But for me, when you're starting off in finance, there's a couple of core ways that you build a business. Number one is you find other people that are in your age and or demographics and you potentially protect risk like disability insurance, life insurance. And as their wealth grows, you grow with them with wealth Mm -hmm. over time, right? Mm -hmm. Or you build a business that goes right at people at or near retirement so that that's when they've accumulated the most wealth that they possibly have. They're probably going to go interview a handful of people to take that those savings years and accumulation years into the distribution and planning years. Mm-hmm. And so you win that that retirement age client. And so, you know, I built a pretty substantial retirement practice, you know, 20 years ago, but I found a massive incongruency, right? So I'm in my early 30s and I'm working with clients that are 65 years old. And I really had nothing in common with those clients. I had the training to help them, but mm-hmm. I just It wasn't what I enjoyed waking up and doing all day, every day was talking to a 65 year old client about, you know, hey, you're getting ready to retire. And, you know, and a lot of those conversations are around where are you going to go on vacation and what kind of puppy dogs do you have and all the other stuff. It wasn't (laughs) about the meat and potatoes of the skill set that I had acquired through the education and training that I had. Right. Mm -hmm. 
And they were di- they're wired differently than me. I'm a 30-something-year-old business owner that had already gone through a liquidity event personally at 29 versus somebody that had sat in a cubicle for 40 years and earned a great wage because they were educated and just been a great saver over multiple decades. We weren't the same type of people. And so I just go, if I have to do this all day, eight hours every day, like I don't really, this isn't the client that I would choose to work with. So mm-hmm. how do I find other lunatics like myself to some extent, right? <laughs> And so the thought process is investment, insurance, retirement, estate, and taxation are the five core pillars of financial planning. But the only one that you can provide an instant level of gratification and the only one that speaks directly to a high net worth client like a dog whistle is tax planning, right? Mm -hmm. Because if I say hey, this investment's going to do really good and we're going to know how it works out in the next few years. You know, there's market cycles and stuff could get there or not get there, right? So, um, and that could take years. And if somebody buys an insurance policy from you, the hope is that they never use the insurance policy because if it triggers, something bad kind of happened. And that's not, no, that's not a good deal. So, but if I say I can save you $100,000 in taxes by using sophisticated planning, that's the next time you file your tax return. That's as close to instant gratification as you can. And and I have clients call me all the time and say, oh, well, you know, I'd like to do some tax planning and I think I could save an extra 10 grand here or whatever. And I go, look, not to be disrespectful, but if we're trying to really remove $10,000 in taxes from your planning, you don't have a tax planning problem. You have an income problem. You're not making enough money to have a real tax problem. So you need to focus more on making more money because if you're not paying six figures in taxes in my world, you don't really have a tax problem, right? Mm-hmm. So like I wanted to work with people that thought like I did that, you know, built businesses that, you know, did things, invested in things and created real opportunities. And and that was what I wanted to ultimately build. So I went back to the drawing board um, and built the foundations of it on tax planning. And so today, um, you know, I educate tons of CPAs and attorneys on advanced tax code and opportunities. And so when their clients go through these, you know, um, I've had clients sell businesses for 40, 50, hundred million dollars. I've had, you know, people just make $20 million in a year out of the blue, just income, just explode, right? Their business just take off. So I've seen all kinds of things. People sell patents and big real estate development projects blow up and all that. So these people are hitting an opportunity where there's a massive amount of taxation. And so there's the ability to go in and acutely solve that problem. And then now they got wealthy through a concentrated type of an event. We solved the tax problem. Now diversification potentially shows up and saying, well, I want to stay rich. I don't ever want to go back. Right. How do I do that? And so, you know, like you, many of my clients are my age or younger, many of them, mm-hmm. and are worth tens of millions of dollars because they are, um, you know, they had a risk appetite and they went for it in something they believed in and it worked. Now, I can tell you the road is littered with tons of people that had an idea and went for it and it didn't pay off and it blew up on them and they never had a tax problem. So I never met them. Right. Because <laughs> it didn't work. But I have a ton of high achieving, super high income earning clients that are skew younger that were like, I'm going to go out, figure it out, do it for myself, build a business. And the people that I work with, um, it worked. And eventually they walked into their CPA or their attorney and said, here's what I made. I got a crazy tax problem. What do I do? And their CPA or attorney probably went to the old standard playbook 
you know, here's some qualified plans and here's some other stuff that you could do. That's not moving the needle for somebody making $10 million or whatever. They have to use more advanced strategies and more advanced planning. And then that's when many of them have said, because they've heard me speak at conferences or other things, um, have said, hey, I, I don't know what the strategy is, but I know a guy that would might know the strategy and we could do a consultation with him and see if, see if he says anything that makes sense, right? Yeah. I'm glad that you went to a different market range. That's also the reason why I was like, here's my ideal client, right? I'm not doing estate planning for people that are in their 60s and 70s. That's not the life that I'm living. I am an entrepreneur in my late 30s. I want to be helping younger, you know, Gen Z, um, not Gen Z, sorry, Gen X or the elder millennial community. Like those are the people that, uh, that I understand. I know what they're going through. Like, and similarly you did that and it worked for you. And I think part of knowing how to like what your niche is, is really understanding what version of yourself is out there that needs the help with your skill set. Yep. Yeah, you got to know. I mean, look, we've all heard the thing is, you know, find your tribe and find your people and all that stuff. And and it's like, you know, I was just trying to find other people that were wired like I'm wired and that think like I think and have the risk appetite that I have. And, you know, it's calculated risk, you know, like there is no such thing as a risk free as a risk free trade. Everything you have to look at and go, is the juice worth the squeeze? Right. So every business decision you make, should I hire a new employee? Should I buy a new vehicle? Should we expand into a new product line? Should I open a new location? Like all of those things are not guaranteed for success. It's a calculated risk. If I put this money out, I expect for every dollar I put out, hopefully $2 or $3 comes back if we execute on this strategy appropriately. And so, you know, and I think that that's how I look at tax planning is, you know, most tax professionals say, how do we put the right numbers in the right boxes in the right forms at the right time to stay 100% compliant? And I argue that I don't think any business owner really wants their tax professional to think that way because that's not the way a business owner thinks. They go, okay, if I can save $200,000 in taxes, but there's a 10% chance that I get audited and it takes me six months to go through the audit and cost me $20,000 of additional capital to defend the audit, but I have a position going into it, is the juice worth the squeeze? That's not shooting for a zero compliant, no chance of an audit. That's going, if I get audited, I'm doing it because it's worth it to me to, because I have an argument and the value is there and your tax professional doesn't pay your taxes for you. So I think that when people that have a risk appetite that go for it to go, okay, there's another way to do this, not just pay what's on the bottom line, but make a case and use something differently that they're willing to lean into that opportunity. And and that's how I built a business. I love that. You're part of the reason why the opinion letters are out there. (laughs) (laughs) I rely a lot on those opinion letters. Like I admire businesses and individuals going out there and going, so we tried this and, you know, in your opinion, will this work? Is it okay? Or even just the the tax court, um, you know, rulings, right? It's like, hey, guess what? This does work, right? Like land trusts and 1031 exchanges. Who knew until there's that opinion letter that came out because somebody tested the waters and and that's what entrepreneurs do. They test the water for all of us test the water. Somebody's got to be the pioneer, right? And sometimes mm-hmm. it's painful to go out there and be the pioneer. You catch arrows along the way, but you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> Unless you're Colombian, then it's what doesn't kill you makes you fatter. 
<laughs> wait, wait, say that again. And That's the saying th- in Colombia. What doesn't what? kill you makes you fatter. Makes you fatter in Colombia. Okay, there you go. It's because of the food, right? Right down there. Food, but like wealth as well. So yeah, yeah, I understood. Understood. Well, awesome. Well, hey, this has been a lot of fun. I appreciate you coming on the show today and kind of sharing, you know, your, you know, the business that you built and the clients that you serve. Any, uh, any closing thoughts? Any final words? Anything that we didn't get to? Any closing thoughts? So I would say, um, if you're thinking about starting, you know, your own business. Go speak with a professional about it, both a tax advisor and a legal advisor, but also go for it because the risk of not doing something can be much worse. Well, I think that's, um, we're only going to be able to look back in time and know if this time in history is right. But I think with the great resignation and all the other stuff, you've got a lot of people that are going, you know, corporate America is not going to take care of me. I'm going to lean into the opportunities that I see. Hopefully that works out for a lot of people. I, you know, the whole uh, theme of uh, a side hustle today has become real big in the vernacular. And mm-hmm. I'm not sure everybody, you know, and some people side hustle is turning into their hustle hustle, right? So, you know, hopefully that works out for a whole bunch of people. Hopefully it doesn't cause a whole bunch of people to be, you know, broke and destitute and thrown out of their houses and everything else, you know, shooting at a, biz- a bad business plan or a bad business model, right? Yeah, you know, you got to crack a few eggs to make some some souffles. So, <laughs> <laughs> now and our bakery show next week, everybody had to crack a few eggs and make a souffle. <laughs> yeah, you got to go full fancy if you're going to crack some eggs. <laughs> go for the <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. So, so everybody, okay. This was, once again, this was Matt Chancy Tax Alpha Solutions Podcast. And um, today's special guest that we had was Natalia Willette. Grice, um, business attorney, business estate planning attorney. Uh, she likes the younger clients involved in real estate. You know, get her when you're ready to start your business formation, put it all together the right way. Um, part of a team and a collaborative process. She's definitely someone you would want to look up. So thank you, Matt. Appreciate in the Tampa Bay area. And you in probably Tampa Bay. Yes. in the Tampa Bay area. So very good. Well, hey, I appreciate you being on the show. Say, thanks so much for your time today. And uh, we'll, you know, all the links to your contact information will be uh, for anybody that listens to this on uh, any, wherever you listen to your podcast, the information will be below so they can reach out and contact you. All right. Amazing. Thank you. Good stuff. Well, thanks so much. And uh, everybody, Tax Alpha Podcast, Matt Chancy signing off. Have a great week. Thank you for listening to another episode of Tax Alpha Solutions brought to you by Matt Chancy. We hope you enjoyed listening to this week's guests and insight. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. 